Well, hey, everybody, it is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. We're honored to have you along for the ride. And before I get to the talk today, I wanted to share a fairly significant personal update with you because, well, Sarah Ann and I are adding a member to our family. And I know we already have four kids, but here's the thing. Last week, we were serving at a camp with about 400 teenagers, and a lot of the staff had babies around, really cute babies just running around camp. And so we decided on the way back from North Carolina that we were going to have another puppy. <laughs> yep. And uh, two days later, he arrived. Uh, we found him on the internet, uh, puppytrader.com, I believe. But anyway, we named him Gus. And uh, obviously, he is a Michigan football fan already. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, we are absolutely in love. Although at three in the morning, he did attack my head as he was pulled into bed. I like opened my eyes, and there's this white paw coming at me. And I was like, ah, you know. And fortunately, he weighs like two pounds. But anyway, um, as my voice pointed out, he is extremely squishy, which is his best feature. But anyway, uh, yeah, so hopefully uh, if you watch the Facebook, you'll get to see Gus grow up. It'll be kind of fun. But anyway, we are in the final week of a series that we've called Because You're Loved. That's all about the invitation to rethink your entire approach to religion because of the love that God has demonstrated for you in Jesus. And as we've mentioned each week in this series, this is the same love that an early Jesus follower named John was talking about when he wrote what has become the most famous set of verses in the entire Bible. They, they go like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then John went on to say, and I love this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In, in other words, John wrote that the God who created the heavens and the earth, like the one true God, is not fundamentally angry with people. Like he loves us and through Jesus desires to be reconciled to us. And I'm telling you, like we're so familiar with these verses, but you have to understand when that message went out into the ancient world, they began to call it gospel or good news because it was good news, and it was good news that disrupted pretty much everything that people had ever thought about religion or about how the deity in control of everything feels about them. And in this series, we've been exploring the specifics of how, like what exactly got disrupted as for them as well as what I think it means for you and me today. Okay, so that said, with our time together this weekend, I want to talk to you about what the reality of God's love for you does to the way that a Jesus follower should approach religiously motivated financial generosity. That's a fancy way of saying giving money away, right? Uh, and in order to get us going, what I want to do is talk to you about a conversation that I had with a good friend a few years back that, if I'm honest, I think provided the spark for this entire series. So here's what happened. Uh, he and I were visiting a car stereo shop right here in Grand Rapids in order to select a large-powered subwoofer for his car. You know, I was doing the work of the Lord, right? Uh, and uh, after securing my input and making his selection, we walked out into the summer sun, and he asked, um, well, he asked me if he could ask me a pastor question, like air quotes. And I said, of course, because 
kind of my job. And, and then he said something like this, and I had to kind of reconstruct it, but he said something like this. I'm wondering if you think that it would be okay with God if I use some of the money that I plan to give to church this month to buy my neighbor some groceries. Uh, apparently, he had some neighbors that were going through a nasty divorce, and uh, one part of the couple, as it was breaking apart, was really strapped for resources. And uh, because I was feeling a bit spicy that afternoon, uh, and because it's what Jesus often did, I decided to respond to his question with a question. I said, how would you answer that if someone asked you? And he said to me that he had been taught, uh, taught growing up to believe that if he didn't give a certain percentage of his income to his church each month, then he was essentially stealing from God and was in danger of God withholding blessings from his life. And then he went on to confess that he wasn't exactly sure what it meant that God would withhold blessings, and so he had always just given a set percentage of his income away each month as a way to sort of ensure God's blessing in his life. And he, he also said that if someone had asked him that question, he'd probably tell them that, well, it might be dangerous to, you know, reallocate some funds that had been previously dedicated to the church to help someone in need. And, uh, well, when my friend, uh, when I asked my friend, like, where did you get this idea? Like, where did this come from? He referenced some sermons that he remembers as a kid, because they terrified him, uh, that, were, uh, some, that were taken from the last book in the Old Testament. It's the record of the writings of a Jewish prophet named Malachi. And I'm telling you, when I was a kid, I thought it was Malachi. <laughs> I just did, right? It's like the Italian prophet, Malachi. But anyway... So it's Malachi, and around 450 years before the time of Jesus, Malachi delivered the following message from God to the people of ancient Israel. And interestingly enough, uh, this message was in the form of a hypothetical conversation, which is kind of unique, but Malachi recorded God as saying to the people of Israel, will a mere mortal rob God? You can already tell the tone here is a little stern, right? Yet you rob me, but you ask, how are we robbing you? And then he says this, in tithes and offerings. I say, okay. Well, then he says, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. And then he says this, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields and will not drop, oh, the vines in their fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe. He says, then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Okay, so now if you think about it, uh, that day in the parking lot, my friend articulated that he had been raised or sort of picked up an if-then sort of understanding of God's blessing in his life. Like he was taught that if he gave a percentage of his money away, then he would activate divine blessing. And if he didn't, well, kind of dot, 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 things might not go well for him. And so from a brutally honest place, he asked me a brutally honest question. Would God be upset with him, like enough to withhold blessing in his life, if he helped out his neighbor with some of the money that he had previously allocated to the church. Uh, and at this point in the conversation, as I remember, I, I told my friend that I had some really good news for him that initially wasn't going to sound like really good news. And he sort of looked at his feet and smiled. And I said to him, um, your entire paradigm for giving is wrong. <laughs> That's the part that doesn't sound like good news. I said, you were taught a sort of give-to-get strategy of religiously motivated generosity. And as it turns out, that is not what Jesus intended for his followers. 
because, and this is huge, that's not the sort of relationship that God wants with followers of Jesus. And if that strikes you as odd, if you grew up in church, you're like, whoa, we are tiptoeing into heresy here. Hang with me, right? Here's why I can say that so confidently. God delivered his message through the prophet Malachi to the people of ancient Israel during a period of their history when they were under a conditional if-then relationship with God's blessing in their lives. And God had established this set of rules of relationship with them shortly after he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. That story is found in the second book of the Old Testament, a book called Exodus. And God had introduced the terms of this if-then relationship this way. He had said to the people, now, if, and see, I didn't even make it up. It's right there. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant or the set of rules that I have set for you, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me, and look at this, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you follow all the rules, then I will divinely bless you and protect you. You'll be a treasured possession for me. Now, now Bible scholars who have way too much time on their hands have formally described this relationship this way. They call it a bilateral suzerainty treaty. That's your vocab word for today. There will be a quiz, right? Uh, and they've said that in the ancient world, this was a type of agreement or covenant or testament, kind of all the same thing, made between two unequal parties that always work the same way. The greater power, or the suzerain, that's the fancy word for it, dictated the terms, set the rules, for the lesser party. And so in this case, God, obviously the greater power, said to the people of Israel, if you keep my commands, then I'll bless you, and then I'll keep you safe. But, and this is a big but, it's a great pastor joke. I couldn't, I just had to let it hang. Yeah, somebody's like, ooh. Uh, so, but, but if you don't, then God would say, I am under no obligation to supernaturally bless you or protect you. See, under this covenant then, God had an if-then relationship with ancient Israel. He loved them as a father loves a child. But if they wanted his supernatural blessing in their lives, then they needed to obey him fully. They needed to do everything he told them to do, including, you guessed it, bringing a set percentage of their resources each year to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, it's worth noting that in ancient times, these resources were most often uh, crops or animals and not money, because that's how the economy worked back then. Uh, actually, God's command regarding sacrificial generosity, uh, he actually worded it this way. Moses had told the people, he says, a tithe of everything from the land, like grain from the soil, fruit from the trees, so that's like your crops and stuff, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. And then he says, every tithe of the herd and flock, your animals, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. And so as God intended it, this tithe, and the word literally translates tenth, was intended to fill the storehouses in the temple in Jerusalem with food for a couple of very specific purposes. Uh, one, to provide for the physical needs of the priests who worked in the temple, uh, and second, as a way to help people who found themselves at a place of need. It was a sort of ancient social safety net designed to serve the poor and the vulnerable. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're like, that makes sense. God was always telling his people to care for the poor and the orphan and the widow and the vulnerable. So now with that bit of context, I want to reread God's correction 
of the people of ancient Israel through Malachi. So one more time, God said this, um, will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me, but you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. So you're not bringing the animals and the crops to the storehouse in Jerusalem. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Then he says, okay, kind of turns the corner, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. You know, it's like, test me in this, says the Lord, and, and check this out, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not enough room to store it. Like in your house. He said, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe. Then, and here's the why, all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord. So in this passage... God essentially told the nation of Israel, you're violating the terms of our agreement, of our covenant, of our testament. You're not holding up your end of the deal. And consequently, there isn't enough food in the temple to supply for the needs of the priests and the needs of the needy. The needs of the needy. Hmm. Anyway, yeah, you're stealing from them. And so essentially in doing that, you're stealing from me. And, and so if we're honest, this is a stern rebuke. But, it, but notice that within this correction, there's hope. Because again, God's covenant with ancient Israel worked both ways. And it wasn't a one and done. It was an ongoing relationship. And so even after neglecting their responsibilities, God told them that if they began to do what he instructed them to do, if they returned to covenant faithfulness, then he would bless them and protect their crops and support them and care for them. So... At this point in the talk, it would be more than fair to ask whether God's instructions through Malachi to ancient Israel have anything to do with us today. And I'm convinced that the answer to that question is no, like not at all. And, and, and here's why, and this may be worth writing down if you're taking notes, God's covenant with ancient Israel is not the same as his covenant with followers of Jesus. Thankfully, we are under a new and better covenant. And if you're offended by the better thing, that is actually what the author of a New Testament letter called Hebrews talked about. It. He said it's a new and better covenant. And because of that new and better covenant that was made possible through Jesus' death on the cross, instead of existing in this if-then sort of relationship with God's blessing in our lives, our covenant with God is unilateral and unconditional. In other words, under the terms of the new covenant, our obedience does not activate divine blessing in our life other than indirectly through positive consequences that flow from wise decisions, because that is true. Like following the way God wants us to live, we are blessed, but not in the same way ancient Israel was blessed, which of course brings me back to how generosity is supposed to function in the life of a follower of Jesus. Again, not to earn God's blessing, but because through Jesus, we already have God's blessing. I mean, if followers of Jesus are supposed to be generous with our time and our talents and our financial resources, and we are, then like, are there any parameters whatsoever about how much is enough? And, and I'll let an early pastor named Paul answer that question for us. So 2,000 years ago, in a letter to some of the first Christians, and the first Christians that he was writing to, there would have been Jewish Christians that understood the old covenant, and there would have been non-Jewish or Gentile Christians. They were living in Greece, so the church was sort of spreading around the Mediterranean rim. Here's what Paul said to them. And again, Paul was raised under the Old Covenant and had found the New Covenant. He says, each of you should give 
what you've decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Paul says, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, Paul wrote that followers of Jesus should never give out of the fear that if they don't, God won't bless them. Again, that's not the sort of relationship that God has or desires to have with people anymore. It's a different covenant. It's a different purpose. Instead, Paul wrote that God loves sacrificial generosity that flows from people who have joyfully received his sacrificial generosity as demonstrated in the sacrifice of Jesus and who in response to that reality desire to reflect God's sort of generosity to the world. And Paul actually reinforces this point as he continues to write. Here's what he said next. He said, and I love this, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Paul's, listen, you're blessed in order to be a blessing. That's the way God intended it. Then he says this, you will be enriched in every way so that, and so that you will be enriched? No, so that you can be generous on every occasion. In other words, Paul writes that under the new covenant, God blesses followers of Jesus in order to enable them to be generous. I see Paul understood that under the new covenant, God's blessing precedes our generosity instead of being contingent on it. I was super excited when I came up with that sentence. I'm going to read it again. Under the new covenant, God's blessing precedes our generosity instead of being contingent on it. And that's a really big deal if you think about it. Like, to be honest, it fundamentally changes not only how we think about generosity, but also how we think about God. I mean, I think it's fair to say that for my friends who grew up believing that they had to be generous or else, right, uh, they often would imagine God to be less like their heavenly father and more like the Godfather, <laughs> right, <laughs> who had to be paid off in order to ensure the protection of your assets, <sighs> right? That was a terrible Italian accent. I don't even know why that was. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, it's really hard to believe that a mafia boss loves you. And now, save your emails. That is not how people in ancient Israel under the Old Covenant viewed God. But I'm telling you, it is often the picture that we get when we pull an Old Testament imperative into our modern world without establishing context. So I'm telling you, that's why it's so important to understand that what God intends to motivate generosity in the lives of followers of Jesus today. I mean, again, is system, or systematic sacrificial generosity supposed to be a part of followers of Jesus' lives? Yes. But see, not in order to get anything from God. Followers of Jesus, people like you and me, are called to be generous because in accepting the sacrifice of Jesus, we've stepped into a whole new economy. One in which in response to the incredible generosity we've received from God, we are like compelled to extend generosity to other people, to use our time and our talents and our treasures, our financial resources, to make life better for our friends and for our neighbors and even for the world. Which sort of brings me back to the pastor question that my friend Ask me in the parking lot of a car audio showroom, right? Remember, he, he said something like this. Um, I'm wondering if you think that it would be okay with God if I use some of the money that I plan to give to church this month to buy my neighbor some groceries. Um, and, and after um, 
asking him how he would answer that question and explaining how after accepting the sacrifice of Jesus, God desires Christians to bless others as we have been blessed by him and explaining that the New Testament imperative for giving is that we should give what we've decided in our heart to give, not out of fear or compulsion. So after all of that, uh, he looked back at me and said, well, that kind of changes everything, doesn't it? (laughs) And I said, yeah. And he he says, I haven't ever understood that before. And he said, and to be honest, now that I do, I'm kind of embarrassed that I asked you the question where I asked you the question. (laughs) He goes, I mean, I just signed a contract to have like an admittedly unnecessary, but really awesome subwoofer (laughs) installed in my car that's worth at least seven or eight times what some groceries for my neighbor would cost. Like the fact that I did that demonstrates that God has been so generous to me and my family. And if he's not up there watching and waiting for me to stop giving so that he can stop blessing, he says, honestly, that makes me want to give even more. And I smiled and said, yes, exactly. That's the idea. Everything changes when you recognize that you're loved by God. Like everything. That's That's where this whole Christianity thing has to start. Okay, so now, before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about a question that I get fairly often from new people who are sort of exploring uh, what it means to be a part of Keystone. And I want to tell you why we don't talk that much about giving at Keystone. Like, why in our 27-year history we've literally never passed an offering plate, like not one time. And, And spoiler alert, it's not because I'm afraid to talk about money, obviously, And it's not because it's not important for the health of our organization. I mean, like all churches, we have to pay for important things like natural gas and electricity and popcorn. Come on now. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Moreover, like as a pastor who works full-time in the service of this church and who's been a pastor for like 27 years now, I've noticed that my wife and children have grown accustomed to things like eating and living indoors. I'm just throwing it out there, right? And so it's not that money isn't important around here, but we don't talk about giving to the church that much around here because not talking about giving to the church has been a part of our core strategy since the very beginning. And if you grew up in church, you're like, yeah, that's super weird. Like, why would that ever be? And And I'll tell you why. Now, Keystone was started way back in 1994 with the express purpose of reaching out to people who had either been wounded by the church from one reason or another or who had never been a part of a church at all. And the commitment not to make talking about giving to the church more than is absolutely necessary, sometimes we need to, right? That commitment was made due to the fact that many people who are cynical about church or critical of church will say things, and you've heard these things before, they say things like, well, they only want to get my butt in their pew and their hand in my wallet, right? Butt in the pew, hand in the wallet, and that's actually why we don't have pews. Hmm. Thank you, yeah. (laughs) Nah, okay, not really, right? We don't have pews because they're horribly uncomfortable and they're designed to keep you awake during long, boring sermons, which we don't have. Yay! All right, so, but yeah. But anyway, uh, from the very beginning, Keystone has tried to remove every obstacle to someone coming to faith in Jesus other than the cross of Christ. And historically speaking, especially in the 80s and 90s in this country, one of the biggest obstacles people have run into in the church is not wanting to be guilted or shamed or feared into giving money to the church. And so the wonderful people who planted Keystone, including my illustrious co-leader, Randy, 
made a decision that they weren't going to do that. No fear, no guilt, no coercion to give. Because, and this is huge, that isn't what Jesus wanted for his church. As he envisioned it, his church was to be a place where anyone and everyone could find and follow him. He didn't say it that way, but he would have if he had thought of it. I'm just kidding, right? Yeah, yeah. And everyone could find and follow him regardless of their ability or lack of ability to meet the financial needs of the organization. The church of Jesus Christ from the very beginning was to love all and serve all. In fact, you should know that whenever someone calls or emails or texts, or even in an old school moment, walks into the office looking for help around here. If they need a, uh, they want to talk to a pastor, get some wisdom, or a hospital visit, or help with a memorial service for someone in their life who's passed away, who really never attended here, but they just need someone to help. We never, never, never look at whether this person has ever given any money to Keystone. Because Jesus would never have looked at whether somebody had given any money to anyone. He met people wherever they were, and he loved them. And that's what he did, and so that's what we want to do. And so if you're new around here, you know, and, and, and you've listened to all this, and you're like, well, this is really refreshing and really different. But you probably have a question, something like, man, that is awesome, but like, no offense, how does this place get funded then? And if you're thinking that, then you should know that in this room and tuning in online right now, there are almost 500 families out of the 1,500 or so who call Keystone their church who regularly and faithfully support this organization. And, and if you're one of them, thank you, right? And, and they don't do it because they believe that if they don't, God won't bless them. And they don't do it out of shame or guilt or fear. See, they give because they love Jesus. And they believe that our community needs a place where anyone can come and hear the greatest news in the history of history with no strings attached. The news that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so they willingly and faithfully and regularly give of their financial resources so that their friends and neighbors can know the truth about Jesus. Because those friends and neighbors are loved, even if they don't realize it yet. So now, one, one more thing. Um, obviously, at this point, I would, should be sued for malpractice if um, I didn't invite those of you who don't currently support the work of your church to join us as a financial partner. I mean, it really helps as we plan and dream for our future. In fact, over the next year, in response to the growth that we have been experiencing, we actually want to add another pastor to our staff who will specifically focus on creating opportunities for you to go deeper in your faith, like outside of Sunday morning. And obviously, as we've never had a full-time person in that role before, our monthly expenses will go up if we do this. And so um, if you've never uh, come online as a financial partner for the church, um, I just ask that you have a conversation this week with whoever you do life with um, about what it might look like for you to do that. And if you can, I won't know. I don't look at giving records. But if you can, thank you. And if you can't, well... You'll still always be welcome to be a part of what God is doing here at Keystone. 
Because I'm telling you, you're loved. And that's where this whole thing has to start. Because that is the gospel. All right, now I'd love to invite you to stand. And I'll close our time together in prayer. And if you're here this morning and you wandered in and you got the money talk, I probably not the money talk you think you were getting, but anyway, if that's you, you just, but you're like, that was interesting. I want to talk to somebody. We would love to meet you down under the screen to the left. We have some volunteers who'd love to pray for you um, and just offer any, any guidance that we can. But for the rest of us, um, I'll close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, whew, you are so, so, so good. And we desire for our world to know how good you are. We thank you for the incredible, undeserved generosity that you have showered on us all through the gift of your son. And thank you for the call in response to accepting that gift, to offer our lives as living sacrifices, like that our entire approach to life would be one in which we're generous with our time and our talent and our resources, not to get something from you, but because of what we already got from you. And so we pray for our friends and our neighbors who are jaded against religious organizations. I, I pray that you, know, you would arrange conversations and you'd give us the courage to maybe make an invitation that they would come to see the beauty of what you intended for your church. Thank you for trusting imperfect people with a perfect message. And I pray for your blessing, your grace, and your peace to be in us all. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.